Okay. Well, our guest today, Peter Canova, for the past 30 years has traveled the world researching mainstream and alternative religious spiritual studies along with quantum physics. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Peter Canova, as we shall find during this interview, I'm sure, your tootsies are caressing the higher essence of life wherever you are. Um, Peter is an author, a prominent national speaker, and a leading authority on the secret teachings of the Gnostic Gospels, quantum physics, the sacred feminine, and ancient spiritual traditions. His acclaimed spiritual thriller, Pope Annalisa, won an unprecedented nine national book awards in less than a year since its publication, including the Nautilus Gold Award for Extraordinary Fiction, formerly bestowed on such authors as Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Peter also recently signed an agreement with the production executives of the Oscar-winning film Black Swan to adapt Pope Annalisa as a major motion picture. My goodness, this makes me so exciting, Peter. <laughs> it's been a journey. Yes, and some people say that uh, Pope Annalisa takes off where the Da Vinci Code left off. So uh, it's going to be a wonderful movie. And you are, Peter's a nationally sought-after dynamic speaker who is going to be presenting in Hollywood uh, the Gate 3 event coming up this February 3rd. And Gate stands for Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment. And it was founded by uh, John Raitt, Edgar Tolle, and Jim Carrey. And it's going to be a wonderful event, and we are going to be lucky enough to listen to you when you're there. So uh, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. And you know, Pope Annalisa is the book one of their First Souls trilogy, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a sweeping epic of the evolving human soul. It's a rare work, part thriller, part spiritual wisdom, and it opens the reader's eyes up to reality grounded in genuine ancient mystery teachings and modern science, such as quantum physics. Now, I have a question for you, Peter, because I'm curious. Did, did this book or trilogy come to you as a whole and you had to break it down to pieces or did it come to you in pieces and it evolved that way? Well, I guess I guess it was a little bit of both. Uh, the, the general story or the idea of the African nun who becomes the first female pope uh, probably was the first thought that came to me, but that was closely uh, followed on the heels of the idea that I really wanted to deal with the whole story of spiritual incarnation into the material plane. And I wanted to do it through the lives of certain characters who I call the first souls. These are cardinal primal spirits, the first ones to fall from the consciousness of of uh, spirituality into the consciousness of materiality. And their story is really our story. It's a story about the origin, destiny, and purpose of humanity. And obviously with sweeping themes like that, it's hard to encompass in one book, even one fairly big book like Pope Annalisa. So I, I, I soon decided that you know this really needed to be treated in, in three parts. Now you were um, an intuitive, um, medical, a medical intuitive at one time, and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, before that, you traveled as a businessman all over the world. What brought you into this type of work? Well, it was really back in the 1970s, or so I'm dating myself now, but I um, had my first vivid spiritual experiences back then. And it did start off with finding out that I was a medical intuitive. And once I, my mind was able to wrap itself around what my intuitive self was doing, and I was able to get my logical mind into the back seat and let it happen, it opened up a whole floodgate of experiences for me, um, premonitions, uh, clairvoyance, clairaudience, remote viewing, you know, things that I guess people would call psychic phenomena. I don't really like that term, but I guess maybe that's the most recognizable term to use. And I was getting information that literally was picturing out in the so-called real world and to the point where I couldn't ignore it. I mean, I, I knew that there was another dimension of life out there, and that dimension of life had very much to do with what our experience is down here. In fact, it really is the template or the blueprint for our experience down here. And I was getting information from that dimension, which I really believe I was contacting my own higher self because my view of things is that we are kind of like, um, oh, I guess you could say the avatars of our own higher selves uh, down here on this material plane, and we've kind of forgotten that. And the real trick is to remember our origins and kind of trace our way back there. So I was getting a lot of information uh, from that dimension. And it really set the course of my life that led me on this whole path to do this uh, series of books and all the talks that I do around the country and all the work that I do right now is really kind of devoted to trying to help other people realize and get to that same space in their lives. Peter, was there anything in particular that stepped you into this, the writing of um, the first book in this trilogy? Yeah, well, the specific of circumstances, and I, I guess the way this happens is it's a whole confluence of events that lead to something like this. When I was uh, really active in business, I did a lot of our own marketing and promotional work for our various developments that we would do. So I always had a little bit of an affinity for writing, and I guess somewhere in the corner of my mind, I always said, gee, you know, wouldn't it be kind of neat to experiment with writing? But, you know, I, I didn't have clues for any stories or if I had any ability to this at all, whatever. But at some point, I started, you know, hanging around writers' conferences, and I went to uh, Santa Barbara Writers' Conference in California, which is one of the most respected writers' conferences around, and lo and behold, I won a first literary prize for a short story, story that I did at the conference. So I said, you know, well, you know, maybe I do have the ability to communicate to people in, you know, in a way that, that they, you know, that impacts them, that affects them. So I, you know, started doing a series of short stories, but it was in a screenwriting class when the instructor came in and said, I want you to do a high-concept story, meaning something that's so original that, you know, we've really hardly seen anything like it before, and that's a tall order. Being spiritually oriented, I guess my mind kind of vectored into thinking, well, you know, what haven't we seen before? Well, you know, we really haven't seen very many women priests before. We certainly haven't seen a woman uh, as a pope. And then I started saying, wow, what would a world be like that could allow a woman to be elected the pope? What would have to happen? What would she be like? And what would the world be like to accept her or or, or, not, or, or reject her even? What would happen? So I just kind of, um, you know, played off of that. And one thing led to another, and all kinds of information, you know, just started coming through to me when I set my mind to this idea. The floodgates kind of opened up. So is this what uh, perked your interest in the Gnostic um learning about the Gnostic way of life and 
the Gnostic Gospels and things of that sort. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, uh, the funny thing about it was before I ever read Pope Annalisa, I had done a lot of meditation and spiritual study. So I was already familiar with the Gnostics, but I would say with the Gnostics in particular, more in a cursory sense, I was familiar with a lot of other traditions. But there was something about Gnosticism at some point that caught me. And what kind of blew me away was that out of all the spiritual traditions that I'm aware of, Gnosticism is absolutely the most scientific. So, So scientific that the Gnostic Gospels, if you understand how to read them, actually really predated or presaged um, our major findings in modern quantum physics concerning the origin of humanity, uh, the, or, the, the origin of the, of the universe, the, the nature of reality. Uh, just some mind-blowing stuff that anticipated Carl Jung's psychology, quantum physics, and so many other sciences. And these were guys who clearly ventured into the other side and brought back universal information. And they incorporated it into the only vehicle of their day, which was myth. And a lot of people, unfortunately, think of myth as, you know, just these nice, fantastic stories with all these strange winged creatures flying around, but that's really not what myth is about. Myth is a symbolic way of telling the highest archetypical truths of humankind, and if one knows how to read the myths and can understand them in the context that they were written, you really get a lot more depth out of them. So as I read further into the Gnostic material, uh, I loved it because being a Capricorn, I would have to say that I <laughs> I have the occasion to be around a lot of metaphysical people, and I guess some people you would call New Age types, and I I see um, a lot of good intention, and I see a lot of people trying to exercise intuition, but I also didn't see a lot of grounding. And as a Capricorn, what appealed to me was I now find a second side of the equation, which is a scientific side of the equation that complemented all the spiritual wisdom that I had learned, and it gave me kind of an X and Y axis to sort of plot what life and reality is about, and it did it in a heart and mind way, in an intellectual, scientific way, and in, in an intuitive, uh, you know, feeling way, and that's a really powerful tool, and that's a lot what I try and teach people now. I try and give them both the scientific side, and I try and give them the spiritual side so that they can have their own faith and practice reinforced with all the facts at their command. Well, when I was looking through your website, you're, you're so detailed-oriented, but you use your right brain. I thought, this is a perfect example example of left-right brain being perfectly equal on both sides. When I was, and so that must be what you're teaching others. Well, it's funny. I've been told that so many times before. In fact, uh, a woman who I probably consider my greatest confidant and mentor, um, who unfortunately is pretty ill these days, but she was an absolutely brilliant woman in in, in the, the days when you know her she was physically doing well, and um, she always used to tell me that uh, about uh, you know about possessing a, a kind of unusual balance. And it's interesting because when I took tests to sort of determine left brain right brain dominancy, I always came out like both sides, right in the middle, smack in the middle. I, I, I kind of went both ways. So, yeah, and I, I really think, in essence, what the coming age is really about is about a rebalancing of our energy so that all of us get in that mode. Because in the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus always said, 
that when the two become one, then you shall realize the kingdom of heaven. When the male becomes as the male and the female becomes as the female and there is no male and there is no female, then you will realize the kingdom of heaven. And what he was really saying is the same thing that modern psychologists are saying about our fragmented nature, that if we could take the, the, the left-brain qualities and the right-brain qualities, the analysis, the logic, the linear thinking, and merge that with the intuition, the, the feeling, and the imagination, the creative side of ourselves, and we have those in some kind of an operating symmetry, we really produce a superior human being. I mean, that, and I think that's what this coming age is about. It's about, you know, one time I believe we were probably more uh, intuitive, female-oriented way back in the remote past. Then we, we shifted to the other side, and now I think it's about bringing us back into balance, and I, I really think that's what this coming age is about. Right, because when the feminine, everybody's saying the feminine is coming back, but we, the feminine has to come back and merge with the masculine, not kick it out. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good point, um, Paula, because what I often tell people is do not confuse the sacred feminine with feminism. They're two different things. You know, feminism is, is a political movement, and unfortunately it often gets kind of angry, and it is sort of like, you know, in coming out of anger, it's like, well, you know, we've got to combat this male chauvinist society, so forth and so on. And, you know, not that there haven't been issues, but honestly, I don't think that's the way we were meant to approach things. I think the way we were meant to approach things is transform ourselves first and then transform the outer world, because the outer world really is an expression of our inner selves. And if we were in operating harmony within us, if the majority of people on this earth were in operating harmony within themselves, the earth would reflect that harmony. The fact that we don't have that shows that, you know, we're not there or we, we have to we have a goal. We have to get there. And you're absolutely correct. It's really not to replace the male and that's not the way spiritual evolution works. These things cycle. One one comes to the fore, the other recedes a bit, the other comes to the fore. But I think it's really in this age what we're really talking about is just bringing them into a balance. After writing your book, excuse me, what did it bring forth for you that you hadn't expected after it was released? I, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Uh, your voice is a little fainter than Paula, so could you just speak up a little bit? Sure. After writing your book, what did it bring forth for you that you hadn't expected? Oh, well, you know, the book was a journey because... You, you 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 have to realize that I started this book really probably 12 years ago, over a decade ago. And the reason why it took so long is that I was an international businessman. I worked a very intense job, and I had very little time to write. So I would just have scenes come into my mind, and I would write little you know snippets or segments of notes and things like that on long airplane journeys or when I had some downtime in my hotel rooms in Africa or some foreign country. And so it was done very kind of, uh, you know, over time and, and piecemeal. And the funny thing about it was that um, the original thought I had was that Mary Magdalene would be very involved in this book. And that really came out of left field. I, I had nothing to do with Mary Magdalene. I mean, she wasn't on my radar screen. She wasn't on anybody's radar screen for that matter because when I first started researching her, I could find nothing out there about her other than a few cryptic passages in the Bible uh, where you almost get the sense like she was a figure who was very important at one time, but she was somehow uh, erased or faded out, but they couldn't get rid of her completely. You get this sense of, of a more important figure looming in the background, and uh, I think that's part of the whole story of how women um, got pushed out of leadership in the early church. But uh, I didn't really know why uh, this concentration on Mary Magdalene. 
But I knew she was going to be part of the story, and I guess you know that her part of the story. Well, really, it was for several reasons. Partly because I learned that she was an archetype for the feminine itself, and partially because she was so instrumental to what I believe is the true story of what happened to Christianity. But I only learned that at a very later date. And lo and behold, oh, five years or so into my research and writing, all of a sudden there was this explosion of Mary Magdalene material all over the Internet. People were writing books, articles, essays, speculations, um, and everything you think of just like appear, seem to appear overnight, like Magdalene particles, you know, were all of a sudden charging the air. And it, it took me, oh, you know, quite a while into this journey of writing that I realized that I was like kind of given a cosmic homework assignment. And by writing about Mary Magdalene, I was really chronicling kind of the leading edge of this resurgent sacred feminine that was coming back into our lives. And I really started to realize that the closer we approached 2012 and more and more people started to have that same understanding and speculate that the consciousness shift we're talking about is really a consciousness shift, you know, back to our more intuitive and creative natures, which is represented by the sacred feminine. So it was like a cosmic homework assignment. And that was really interesting to look back in retrospect and see how that all unfolded. I know, um, didn't they... uh find some lost writings about Mary in the 30s or so? Um, yeah, it was actually in 1945. They discovered the Nag Hammadi Gospels in Egypt, and the, near a town called Nag Hammadi in Egypt, and these were the Gnostic Gospels, and they were a tremendous find. They finally gave us a much more substantial view on this whole destroyed tradition of Western mysticism. And the really interesting thing in the Gnostic Gospels is that Mary Magdalene is portrayed as the major disciple. In fact, even more so, many Christians back then, because there were two mainstreams of Christianity back in its formative days. Um, there was what you call the Gnostic Christians and the Orthodox Christians. The Orthodox view is more or less what we have today in all the major Christian denominations. But the Gnostic was a mystical approach to Christianity that was related to an ancient, ancient wisdom tradition that stretched thousands of years back into the mists of time and spans the continents from India all the way to the um, British Isles with these mystery schools that retained this knowledge. And what Jesus was teaching uh, was a form of the Gnostic message. And Mary Magdalene was the disciple who clearly understood this. And this was such a radical teaching that most of the disciples couldn't understand it, except for Mary. And Mary actually had to explain much of Jesus' message to the other disciples. And the ironic thing is, in the Gnostic Gospels, Peter, the founder of the Roman Church, was probably the one who had the most trouble understanding the esoteric or mystical message that Jesus was teaching. Mary understood it most clearly, and she was viewed by many Christians back then as the actual embodiment of the Holy Spirit, which came to earth to complement the Christ Spirit, to anchor this message of light into you know the darkness of our, our focus on the material world and try and turn our faces back towards spiritual awareness. So she played an extraordinarily prominent role, which you can see echoes of in the actual Bible itself. But I, I do believe as part of the movement to um, push women out of the church, which is something else we can discuss, 
that uh, you know Mary was uh, would have played a much more prominent role even in those Gospels had uh, some revisions not been made over over the years. Now, were the Mary was go ahead. I think maybe Mary was bringing in more of the feminine, uh, where the other disciples couldn't correlate that at the moment and understand what you know what Jesus was saying. If you define the feminine as an intuitive understanding of the creation and the forces that made creation, yes, that your statement is correct. Now, were the Essenes part of this? Because I was, I've been told that Jesus studied with the Essenes. There were Essenes, and there were Essenes. Uh, there were a number of Essene communities. Because of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, we often tend to associate Essenes strictly with the Qumran sect where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the, 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 you, can't, you, you almost can't really talk about the Essenes as you know, a strictly monolithic groups, like so many Jewish groups back then, um, under a heading of Pharisees or Essenes or whatever. There were different nuances or shades of belief. The Essenes at Qumran were probably more fanatical and orthodox uh, than some of the Essenes, although they did have some mystical understandings, um, but they were they were quite strict and and I, I would say you know you would say from modern standpoint kind of rigid and the Essenes that most likely were affiliated with Jesus and his family were from Mount Carmel, and there are uh, legends and there are channeled information that Mary was sort of chosen in a way uh, to be a vessel for the indwelling of the divine light uh, in this Essene community at uh, Mount Carmel. Now, there's no actual um, smoking gun to that effect. Uh, there's some circumstantial evidence, uh, whatever. Perhaps one day we'll have a more clear view on that, but that's sort of how that goes with the Essenes and Jesus. So the more that you um, unfold, them, I mean, as you go along, do you keep discovering new and more information about the Gnostics and, and Mary Magdalene. Well, not just about the Gnostics and Mary Magdalene, but it's really a, it's really a growth process for myself. I, I gain new perspectives and new understandings about things that I thought I already had down. And let that be a lesson to everybody that spiritual growth is a journey. It's a process. Don't ever get comfortable and think you're at a point where you have all the answers of the truth, because I guarantee you it will be superseded by new things. And, and new truths, uh, you know, as you as you kind of progress your spiral upward in, into this thing, and uh, you know that's really the kind of difference between religion and spirituality, isn't it? That um, religion tends to be more of a closed-end system, whereas spirituality is an open-ended system. So that if you want to liken it to a journey uh, along a highway, uh, the religion, traditional religion, would be more like the bus stops or the way stations we go into. And you can learn something there, but they kind of want you to punch your ticket there and stay there like, you know, they have all the answers kind of within that box. But the spiritual view would be, thank you, I've learned from you, and you incorporate that into your practice, and then you go on down the road. So you can always stop, uh, you know, at the signpost, but never mistake the signpost for the destination. They're just, a you know, a guide and a, and a help uh, on to the next level. Do you see anything as far as the releasing of um, of the walls of thought that certain religions have? Um, again, I'm I, again I'm ha your voice is kind of fading in and out. Um, I I didn't quite get the whole. Okay, 
let me try again. Sorry. Um, is there any um, any view of you seeing religions uh, releasing the walls of their thought um, and you know and not being as structured in the process in order to create a, um, a humanity that's more cohesive. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I do see trends, although there's a lot more to be done. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the outer religions, I think they've gone through cycles. Uh, Christianity went through its aggressive cycle of fanaticism, probably more back in the Middle Ages. Islam is going through it right now. What's happening in the Western world that I see is that, well, for instance, I read an article a while back where uh, one of these secular periodicals, I think it was Newsweek, was gleefully proclaiming on the front cover that a religion in America is dead. And um, yeah, that's true and it's not true. Uh, what What really is happening is, the people who identify themselves as being religious is declining, but the people who identify themselves as spiritual is rising. And I think what that really means is that people aren't, you know, wholesale becoming atheists and we're not, you know, you know, going to drown in secularism here in, in, in America or in the Western world. But people are looking to new forms of understanding. They intrinsically feel that there's something more to life out there than, you know, just this stuff we knock around and hear down in the material world. Uh, but the answers that they have been given by the traditional religions don't satisfy them, and they, they, they feel a sense of hollowness. So they're turning to other other sources. And I'm hoping for, you know, for instance, like I'm hoping that my work sort of contributes to their greater understanding of where they are on their spiritual journey or works like mine, I think, are kind of filling that need. Um, so when people start to look at things in a more spiritual way, in that more open-ended system, as I spoke of, as opposed to the closed-ended system of religions, and naturally they don't have the same borders, and they're open to understanding the beauty and wisdom of other traditions. Now, the ironic thing is this. If you just take a look at the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, each of those religions was founded on a mystical core. Uh, Judaism, the Kabbalah, Christianity, Gnosticism, and Islam, Sufism. And if you take the Sufis and the Gnostics and the Kabbalists and you look at them and what they're saying, they're so closely related that they're far closer to each other than they are to their own outer religions. Because what happens with spirituality is that the prophet speaks the heart of God, but their followers start religions. Because the followers have not had the experience. They have not had the contact with the higher information, the direct experience. So they don't understand. They start to interpret. And when you interpret, you start putting your own personal agendas in. And when you put your own personal agendas in, that means ego is in operation. So things get all skewed and distorted, and we end up with hierarchies and dogmas and, and everything else. So if each of these religions went back to their own mystical core, they're, they're basically cousins. They're, 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 they're so similar. They're basically cousins. But it's their outer structures, their power structures and their dogmatic structures that uh, are at odds with one another to the point where, you know, if you look at the sad fact of what's happening in the Islamic world today, uh, you know, it's a type of fanaticism that's infecting Islam, you know, to a, a, a great degree, which really had, I think, very little to do with the spiritual, original spiritual impulse of Islam. But, uh, you know, it's going through that phase that Christianity went through several hundred years ago, you know, taking a more aggressive form, which is that everybody's got to believe the way that we believe, and if they don't, then we need to exterminate them. So, um, but I do see hope in the world because at the end of the day, 
um, that path is an empty path. Uh, it's a path that leads to death. It's a path that leads to destruction in its extreme forms. And I, I do believe that we'll eventually evolve to the point where we're looking at a spiritual community that can share common ideas, maybe from different points of view, but common ideas about what life and, and God and our purpose here on earth is about. Well, I think that's what uh, Jesus was teaching all along. Uh, I, I, I think he certainly was. I think I think all the great teachers would have taught that, uh, some form of that, because they <laughs> these guys have seen the way it is. I mean, they know that God is no respecter of religions. You know, our, our God doesn't change itself or its view of us or the world. It's only us changes our view of God and, and, and has all these different theories and conflicting ideas that we want to, you know, push on other people. It's not the real nature of what the world is about. It's a way of control. Yes. So, hopefully, <laughs> there is a light at the end of the road where... Um, that we can see the community coming together. I think there is. I really do. I'm 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 optimistic about it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that um, you know evil's going to vanish overnight. We're going to all have peace and harmony, hands around the world, like you know, in the next couple of weeks. But I, I, you know, it's an evolutionary process, and uh, I believe that we're getting people who are more enlightened about the the way things are, and as that consciousness grows. They start to see themselves as a unity, and they really start to see the true meaning of if you harm somebody else, you know, you 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 harm yourself. You can actually see people's hearts um, really opening, and their thought processes um, are softening. I mean, it they really care for one another. It looks like it's merging across areas. And it's expanding compared to where it was. I, I it mean, I it takes some time to break down those old prejudices and those those walls that you spoke of. It it, it certainly takes time, but it, it it will happen because you know the truth the truth lies buried in our hearts, and you can cover it over, you can lacquer it over, but in this lifetime or another lifetime, it's going to evolve and 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 it's going to come out. The the truth you know the truth will come out. And you can suppress it, you can try and twist it, and you can try and distort it, which is certainly what we've seen in the Western world um, that happened in the Christian and the Jewish experience. Uh, but um, but it, it, it will come out. We're living in an age where people just generally now don't, they're more literate, they're more curious, they're more inquisitive, there's more information available for them. We have more choices, and given those choices that, we can make we now have every reason to opt for a better and more enlightened way of life that might not have been available to peasants back in biblical times well look at the internet (laughs) i mean you can get all kinds of information from the internet and some of the countries that aren't allowing people to use the internet that's their way of controlling but i mean the internet's just opening up all kinds of information and changes well, you know, what's in, what's interesting about the Internet is that probably the, of all the axioms and wisdom sayings I've ever heard in my life, the truest one 
that I've ever run across is as it is above, so it is below, which means that nothing happens down here. Physical objects that we create, technological advances, we have circumstances that haven't already occurred at a higher level. So the Internet really is an analog for the way the whole universe is. We, you know, we're kind of like, it's kind of like a hive mentality in some ways, you could say, but, you know, we're all individuals, but all those little individual cells and computers are, are, are forming a collective mind. Now, yes, that can certainly be misused for very bad purposes. Um, there's no question about it. It can be a two-edged sword, but there's also a very hopeful side, you know, to that, which is that, the ideas that will break down walls between us can now pass easily between the nations, and we can start to see each other as human beings rather than as Muslims and Christians or as Chinese and Americans. We can share the same ideals and the same aspirations and realize that in one another through this contact with the Internet. And that really is the way the universe operates because we are all essentially cells in, in the body and the mind of God. Well, that's probably, I mean, that ancient cultures um, contacted the um, higher mind that's like using the internet I mean everybody could come into one place and like communicate with each other without any technology and that's superior that's a superior way of doing things I mean anything we do mechanically or technologically is always going to be inferior to how we operate spiritually. So the, the Gnostics would have gotten much better information and much more clarity using the techniques they use to reach higher information than what we do using the Internet. But it is the Internet still is a reflection of that process. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of... Let people... Go ahead. Okay. We should let people know that um, Peter Canova's website is Hope analisa.com and that's Pope P-O-P-E Annalisa is spelled A-N-N-A-L-I-S-A dot com it's an incredible website um, regarding his book there's videos that you can look at and um, along with the story which is really incredible Peter what a job well, thank you for mentioning that website. And, yeah, if people visit that, you know, it actually isn't even so much about the book as much as it's about the issues that we're talking about today and more. It talks about the Gnostics, Mary Magdalene, the nature of early Christianity, how quantum physics and ancient spirituality were saying the same things about, uh, you know, the basic questions of life. And, it, like you said, it has a lot of audio, video interviews, and, you know, different types of videos and things there. It's really a wealth of information for anybody that is on a, uh, a spiritual or a, a metaphysical pathway. Well, I got lost in your website for a couple of hours. I mean, and I just barely touched it. I mean, I didn't see everything. It was... It's wonderful. Well, you thank have, you. That's a good. That's good to hear. And you have your first yeah. chapter um, of the book in there, and I listened to that. And the pictures that went along with the as you're uh, uh, reading the the first chapter, the the photography was great. I mean, I thought, whoa. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I put I actually put those together myself. That's another little hobby. As an author, you know, you have to really evolve into a self promoter and it can get very expensive. So I had to learn, oh, you know, how to put together my own uh, video presentations and uh it's 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 kind of been an interesting process. You know, you you're you're really your own best marketer in the authoring business these days because you don't get really much help at all from the publishing company. So, you know, you really have to go out there and promote your own stuff. So it's been uh great to learn how to do all those little things. 
and more well, than one hat. <laughs> yeah, but it's really exciting to see how you know your story merges into you know where we're stepping at this point in our lives, and you know your next book on the trilogy. Have you already began with this one? Yeah, in fact, I'm about one-third the way through it. Uh, I'm actually going over that book with my movie partners now, who seem to be thrilled with the first third of the book. Um, it's called The Thirteenth Disciple, and it's about the first souls. I, I should mention, if I if I didn't mention this earlier, uh, Pope Annalise is part of a trilogy called The First Souls, and The First Souls are the first spirits to fall from the consciousness of the One, the Unity, into the consciousness of materiality or individuality. And the trilogy traces their story through different epochs of history. And it's really our story. Their story is our story. The story of the origin, destiny, and purpose of humanity told in different time periods with the same souls incarnating in different eras and different lifetimes and different lives. And it shows their growth and their struggle to regain their spiritual home uh, over the arc of the arc of the book, and the thirteenth disciple, the second book, really concentrates on Mary Magdalene and the biblical times, the figures around Jesus of Nazareth, and shows how that um, whole early attempt to introduce this way of the light, which in many ways failed, not completely, may have failed back then, but planted the seeds that we can now see coming to fruition today. So whereas Mary Magdalene back in that time was rejected, the whole rise, resurgence of the feminine energy really represents the triumph of her in in a new lifetime in the present, you see. So because we're merging with the feminine again, this probably is what created all the uh, people to... Uh, be curious about Mary Magdalene and research about her. And so, is the movie going to have? Is the movie going to be all three books, or is it? The, the movie deal only encompasses the first book at this point. But like everything else goes, if that's commercially successful, then we'll probably see the second one too, at least second or maybe the third. Now, how long is it going to be before it comes out? Oh, it's going to be a while. It's not going to be next week. For for one thing, we we just signed the deal not too long ago, and it's a pretty laborious process because you've got to take a 450-page novel and boil it down to a 150-page screenplay, which is a big task and to try and keep the integrity of the book and what made you know the book so effective. You want to keep that in the movie, and so to boil it down that much is is a real task. Uh, there's also even the question of what medium it's going to come out in. For instance, in my mind, the ideal would be an HBO miniseries, because there I think if you do a 10-part miniseries or something like that, you can really get you know, all the things that you want to say out there. Uh, right now we're working along the lines of a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and uh, we're, uh, we're just uh, finishing up the first act right now of three acts uh, of the movie, and it's going to take a while to get the script in the form that we want it, and once you have the script in, in good condition, then you start to bring that out and attract the talent. You go to the actors and the directors and the people who you know will be involved in the making of the movie in key roles. And once you get them attached to the project or really committed to the project, you sort of you know hopefully you get 
big names or A-list people that really love this project. And then based on that, you go out and you start the real difficult task of raising the many millions of dollars to produce an epic movie like this. Really? Yeah. So are you, are you, you're involved with the screenwriting then? Oh, I am. Yeah, I am definitely. I wrote the original screenplay, but I, I knew that that would not be the final screenplay because I tried to um, – it was very long, and I essentially tried to give my partners, my film partners, the maximum dialogue, uh, palette of dialogue to have in the reduced version so that they could sort of pick and choose uh, – you know what how they wanted to phrase things how they wanted to portray things so it's it's a real distillation process it's an editing process it's a process of boiling it down to its real you know core essence because you have to be very very tight in a movie you only have x many minutes you know 90 minutes or uh, 120 minutes or whatever you're you know you're going to do in a movie and uh, it has to be very efficient and tight so that's that's what we're working on now do you have in mind people you would like to play the different parts, the different roles? Oh, I've, I've, yeah, we kind of sit around and we toy around with these ideas. We haven't talked to any of these folks yet. I mean, I, I have some, uh, I have a, a couple of friends who are actors that I'm, I want to try and get parts in the, uh, in, in the film. But as far as like lead roles, I, I have some people in mind. I, I just, we just haven't approached anybody yet. Well, it sounds like an exciting adventure. It is. It's. It's. And what's really cool about it, Paula, is that Hollywood has recognized the value of a book like this. I think a year ago they wouldn't have understood this. This is part of the 2012 phenomenon. I think consciousness is changing so rapidly. And you mentioned Gate, the Global Alliance for Transformational Transformational Entertainment. The reason why I'm so excited about Gate, and uh, this February 2nd will be the second time I'm speaking there, is because it really is sort of the spearhead that represents the change in Hollywood away from the mindless violence and trying to put some unifying spiritual content into our films. They're trying to inspire. And I really think at the end of the day, that's what all art is about. I mean, there's all forms of art and there's all effects that art has on different people. But at the end of the day, the highest expression of art is to connect with your audience in an emotional way that inspires them and lifts them out of their everyday consciousness to see something that may not be now, but it could be. And and it, it should be a leading act. It should be a bar for them to aspire to, that the world may not be this way now, but you know what? It really could be. And this movie, this this sculpture, this painting, this music has given me a glimpse of what that could be like. So what are you going to be talking about at Gate? Are you going to be talking, uh, speaking about engaging the audience? Well, actually, what I'm going to be speaking about at Gate is really kind of, um, it really has to do with the whole idea of what a story is about. And I'm going to use the example of the Gnostic Gospels and the whole Gnostic creation story to demonstrate to people how there is an inherent story that's built into the process of life. And to the extent that we can identify that process, which is evident in all successful good movies and books and things like that, then the author can really accomplish something that they'd like to accomplish. So there is a certain rhythm and a certain structure in a story that is really inherent in the very story of our own creation, how we fell from a higher dimension into a lower dimension and how we work our way back from that lower dimension to that higher dimension is the whole uh, what they call a classic story arc 
and I kind of identify what that's all about to try and help artists and people look at their work in uh, a spiritual way, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm going, you know, um, I wonder, as you're doing all of this, you're so psychic. What are you seeing in the future, what are you feeling that we're going to be looking at once we get over this hump? I think that we're probably in for some tough times because there's always a storm before the calm. Uh, and I, I think we're no, no old way dies easily. And the old guard always puts up a resistance of old thoughts, old ideas, and old actions in order for the new to be birthed in. I know there's always chaotic energy when something evolves. There is. And, you know, great light attracts great darkness. And it's all within us, incidentally. Evil and good all comes from within us. There's no devil around there with a pitchfork urging us to do this or that. I mean, that's not the way it works. It, It all comes from within us. There's only one substance there's only one source in the universe, you know, and 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 there from from the very inception of creation, there has always been a force of opposition, and the reason there's a force of opposition is because this is a school. The Earth is 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 a test point. It's a test case, and what it's really all about is becoming an individual, a, a high. Uh, what I could say, an enlightened individual, by overcoming obstacles. And in overcoming the obstacles, we learn lessons. And so that is how we really ingrain things into us. We, we, nothing comes easy. And, uh, you know, the reason why struggle is often involved in things is so that you can appreciate what you've accomplished. And so it will be ingrained in your soul memory because you work so hard to get there. So the force of opposition and the whole idea of Satan in early Judeo Christianity, Satan was not this character with a pitchfork and cloven hooves. Satan was the angel of opposition sent by God to help man overcome, ob- to, to to create obstacles for man to overcome and reach a more enlightened state of being. And I, I just got a picture of you know the fire. Mm-hmm. The fire had a purpose. It had burned the old so that the new could come in. Yeah, yeah, and it's a purification process. Now it ain't often pre- it, it ain't always pretty, and it ain't all, and it's not always peaceful, unfortunately. Um, but uh, out of every destruction of an old way, you know, comes a, comes a new way of being. And to the extent that we can tip the scale of consciousness in more people, the process does become more humane, does become, the transition becomes easier. Uh, and I, I hope that's the way things are going to go. I hope that's the way things are going to go in this coming age, at least to a greater extent than what happened in the past. Well, there's been a lot of trauma. There, there's been a lot of trauma you know, over the last few years. And you know what? This really does soften people. It really does um, allow people to look at their own home ground and, uh, you know, come up with a more of a forgiving state. And I think, you know, that's part of it, don't you think, Peter? Well, there's a danger point here. And the danger point is this. The forces of opposition are great at deviating and co-opting spiritual progress. And 
they, you know, just as the original Christian message was twisted and distorted into something that was supposed to be um, divinely inspired, you know, our paths can get twisted and distorted now because we all have the ideal of unity. You know, I, that's a that's a great concept, the ideal of unity, the the you know union of humankind. These are this is you know it's a great ideal and a great concept, but it's also very easy easy to twist. So, for instance, here's the Here's the sort of um, quandrum or paradox. I believe that before we can experience a sense of unity, we have to have a great sense of self. We have to have a great sense of personal responsibility. And what that means is that when we talk about unity, we have to be careful that if you want to take a look at the political world right now, um, unity and, and, and progress doesn't mean having a big brother taking care of you. doesn't mean giving more power to a central government who's going to entitle you and protect you from cradle to grave. That's not true growth. That's slavery. That's giving over your power to big brother. And uh, and ultimately what that leads is to, well, we've seen manifestations of that here on Earth. It leads to regimes that gather all power unto themselves, whether they be fascist or communist. But, you know, so so many things have happened in the names of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Like look at the French Revolution and look at the bloodshed that occurred to that and look at what that led to. It led back to the dictator Napoleon. It leads to Napoleons. It leads to Hitlers. It leads to Stalins. It leads to Mao Zedong's. So we have to be very careful that we develop our, an acute sense of self and, and, a, and a highly evolved spiritual practice so that when we steer ourselves towards higher consciousness, we do it with eyes open and we do it in a productive and we do it in a, in a good way and we, we don't be misled by false prophets and, and high-sounding ideas that lead us down a cul-de-sac. We have to be very careful about that. Okay. People become lazy, basically. So when that happens, others take over. So. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's e- it's easy to it's easy to promise people that you'll take care of them, you know. And politicians and governments are great about doing that. But what does that really mean? In, in most cases, it really means you know, give me the power, and I'll I'll dole you out, I'll dole you out some crumbs. And you know, we that's I don't think that's where we really want to be. Well, in our, I don't know, in the community that Taz and I work in and, and you work in, people are working on themselves. And the more people that do that, it spreads. So I, I see mm-hmm. that happening layer after layer after layer. And that's why, I, that's why I say we really do have to work on ourselves. We have to work on our own sense of self and our own our own uh, path of enlightenment in order to make um, sound judgments about worldly things like politics and economics and, and things like that. You know, we have we have to proceed from a balanced center. And then when we change, people around us feel the change and they begin to change. So hopefully it will happen quicker 100 than... Mon- hundred monkeys. Yes, I hope it ha- happens faster than what it seems like it's been doing. But I'm excited about living in this time because I'm excited to see all the the change and it's exciting. You know, it, it is. You, you, there's no era of humanity where there's this, you know, just obvious shining silver cloud and, you know, you know, just highway to highway to peace and tranquility. 
Um, but, you know, but the ideal always has to be there. And, you know, I see it. You see it. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, better things better things are w- with uh, you know within uh, our reach and our country is going through a lot of turmoil right now we've been through you know probably the second worst economic period in our history next to the great depression and it's changed the landscape out there um people are scared um and you know when people get scared they they tend to give up power rather than to uh, empower themselves and so uh but where every every danger exists there exists an opportunity and that's where i think that spiritually minded people and spiritually minded messages can provide a real service to people now is by saying, okay, well, you know what, before you think about all that stuff, um, try and get down to the real core issue here. And the core issue is how do we get here? Why are we supposed to be here? What are we supposed to be doing? Start to really look and answer those questions. I know it's hard for a lot of people because you've got to put bread on the table. You've got to get the kids through college. But isn't that the old story? I mean, we were kicked out of Eden to till the earth by the sweat of our brow, which was another way of saying, I'm going to keep you so damn busy, you, you won't have any time for spiritual growth. And we, we, we have to take personal responsibility and make that time. Because we talk a lot about responsibility. It's kind of a buzzword you know, in the pop culture now, per, take personal responsibility. But the one thing that most people don't take personal responsibility for is their own spiritual growth, to, to really look and answer the deeper questions of life and understand, well, how is it that we're really connected to other people? What does that really mean? You know, Can we go beyond the words to go to the feeling and the understanding of what that really means and you know what that really looks like? And I think that what's encouraging is this. As long as people have the intention and the desire and the focus to answer those questions, they don't have to have all the answers right away. But if they're focused on that and that's where they're going, that's what's important. That's what's important to God. That's what's important to us is that, you know, we start on that path and we keep ourselves focused on that path. Because if at some time every day, whether it's 10 or 15 minutes or whatever, we take time out of the world and we try and reflect on these things and we try and contact our own higher selves because that's where all the answers are. All the answers are within. We're basically avatars of our own higher selves in another dimension that know a hell of a lot more than we do. We've just kind of forgotten since we came down here and started identifying with fleshly bodies. But we have all the answers within us. And take time to get in touch with that self of yours. Uh, that, that, then, then the direction of the world, it may go slowly, but it will go in the right direction. That's a big message. <laughs> so you're going to be coming to the Bay Area uh, um soon like did you say in march or i'm tentatively scheduled to come up there on march 17th we haven't set the time uh yet it it uh it will might be in the um uh, one of the uh uh, centers for spiritual living over there uh we're pretty committed on making the date happen just working out the details um but possibly maybe before uh, i actually have the event i can get back with you and we can let some people know that i'll be up speaking in that area well, we'll be uh, glad to have you in our area, and we're going to be glad to, to actually meet you in person. That would be Hollywood wonderful. Mm-hmm. On uh, March 2nd, where the, the gate um, event's happening. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a wonderful event. And we have been really fortunate to have you here today. We've covered a lot of ground. We have, and we could probably spend another show covering a whole lot more ground, so maybe we can do it again sometime. Yes, please. Keep rapidly pushing by, that's for sure. Let's give your website out again one more time, Peter. Yeah, that's popeanalisa.com, P-O-P-E, 
A-N-A-L-I-S-A, that's one word, PopeAnnalisa.com. And I think you'll be happy that you paid a visit to the site because it'll give you a lot of great information, many things that related to, but we weren't able to cover fully here today. Yes, Yes, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 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 So we were just now talking to Peter Canova. Are you there?